0: All week, we've been tackling inequities in vaccine access and distribution in Chicago and Illinois. It's part of our ongoing series, Closing the Gap, where we explore disparities in our region and talk with people working to literally close those gaps. We've talked about how to ensure the most vulnerable people are being prioritized for COVID 19 vaccines. When we talked about the push for diversity in clinical trials, we brought you Chicago's first COVID 19 vaccine trial participants and two healthcare workers vetting the vaccine. In part three, we talked more about building trust around the vaccine, specifically in black and brown communities hit hardest by the virus. Everyone that I hold dear, everyone that I love, I have been actively advocating for them to get vaccinated. This is how we are going to end the pandemic. And particularly for people who are Black and Brown and have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic, we need to get behind this vaccine. This is our best tool to protect us. Today, we're wrapping things up with a closer look at how your access to the vaccine could be affected by where you live. Experts have their eyes on rural communities, Finding health care is already challenging in farm country. On top of that, surveys show many in rural areas are skeptical about the vaccine. So joining us now to discuss this and more is WBEZ general assignment reporter Mariah Wolfel. Hi, Mariah. Hey, Sasha. First, rural areas felt the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic much later than other areas, particularly during the fall surge. So lay out some of the unique challenges that rural areas face in responding to the pandemic.
1: Yeah, so like everywhere, the pandemic has really laid bare issues with healthcare systems within all communities, right? And so historically, rural areas have had issues with accessing healthcare. They've had issues with resources. A lot of rural health systems are underfunded, understaffed. As you can imagine, hospitals can be up to 100 miles away from where someone lives. I spoke to one doctor who, he works at a critical care hospital, which is, you know, critical care hospitals are meant to provide access in remote areas in rural America where healthcare is harder to find. And he's, he he has 20 beds... He has no intensive care unit beds, which are crucial when treating, you know, the coronavirus. And the nearest hospital that does have ICU beds and ventilators and all of these higher tech equipment that you need to treat the pandemic is an hour away. In terms of the vaccine, you know, when we see the Pfizer vaccine distribution, we've heard about these cold storage facilities that you need in order to store the Pfizer vaccine. Those are far and few between in rural areas. And then, you know, vaccine hesitancy rates, they're they're higher in rural areas. And that's been a challenge throughout the... The entire pandemic.
0: Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Mariah, national surveys are showing vaccine hesitancy is a big hurdle for rural areas. Can you unpack that a bit more for us?
1: So the main survey I've looked at is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They do surveys every month on attitudes towards vaccine, and they break it down by demographics and identifiers. Some of the highest hesitancy rates are among Republicans. They're among rural residents. So there's a lot of overlap there, as you can imagine, and then among Black Americans. But as you can also probably imagine, they're hesitant for very different reasons. Rural residents tend to be hesitant about taking a vaccine because they don't think the virus is as serious as it's made out to be by the quote-unquote media, whereas Black Americans, they're most worried about possible side effects. They have more mistrust of public health officials, and so they're more in the category of wanting to wait and see how this vaccine plays out, whereas rural residents are more likely to say they definitely will not be taking this vaccine because they don't think it's necessary. There's several reasons for that. I mean, if you look at the way COVID-19 hit rural areas, it didn't hit rural areas as hard as it did urban areas in the beginning. And so that could be a contributing factor to not thinking the virus is as serious. And even though it's hitting areas harder now, there was this initial disbelief in the virus that was also amplified by politicians. Well, you were
0: also able to, in your reporting, connect with a rural resident who didn't want to be named about why he's hesitant about receiving the vaccine. Tell us more about him and what he had to say.
1: He is a 48-year-old resident of Streeter, Illinois. Um, that's about 100 miles southwest of Chicago. I found him because he was commenting on his local public health department's website, asking about the vaccine, and so I messaged him to see what his thoughts were. And he doesn't think a vaccine is necessary.
0: I don't feel this virus warrants a rushed vaccine. I kind of feel that's what we, we have an immune system for. I just think it's a, pretty much another flu bug. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one too, Right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And he wanted to reiterate to me, he thinks this virus is very serious and can have very serious outcomes for elderly and people who are at risk, but he does not think that he as a young, healthy person should have to take a vaccine. Obviously, the idea of a vaccine is reaching herd immunity, the concept that 70 to 90% of the population has to take it in order to save lives. I asked him about that, and he thinks that, Elderly residents and at risk residents should take the vaccine, and then young, healthy people should just contract the virus and contract it naturally and gain immunity by that. That would lead to an untold number mm-hmm. of more deaths. Healthy people die from the virus as well. I asked him if he has a doctor who he would want to talk to the vaccine about, and he said, you know, he's already made up his mind.
0: Hmm. You also spoke with several doctors and, and health officials about the issue. What did you find there?
1: So they're just trying really hard to go above and beyond their day job to try to combat this. So that means taking calls on off hours. That means posting on social media a lot more. They are on the front lines of this, the Kaiser Family Foundation survey shows that 86% of rural residents say they have a doctor who they trust to give them accurate information about a COVID vaccine. Those rates just plummet when you ask them if they trust state officials or county health departments as much. Those are like in the 50s. So... They are on the front lines, but they're up against a lot. I spoke to Dr. Joey Jackson. He's a rural clinic doctor in El Dorado, which is about 4,000 people. It's southern Illinois, 30 minutes away from Kentucky. And he kind of paints a picture of what he's contending with. We're, We're Bible Belt down here. And there have been some ministers who have been preaching from the pulpit, just an anti-science rhetoric, you know, much like a political figure, you know, that they've got people who trust them to be saying the right thing. You know, that's been pretty dark at times because it's like, well, who am I trying to say? I'm trying to save people who, who who think I'm a fraud, you know, and, and that's, that's been tough. Wow. He says, who am I trying to save? I'm trying to save people who think I'm a fraud, and that's been pretty tough. And so, The emotional toll of dealing with skeptics in day in and day out has been really hard for him. You know, he also talks about wanting to step up to the plate and that's essentially what doctors are doing people I've spoken to have said they've never seen doctors have to be as outspoken as they have during this pandemic. You know, they're taking on this education, this public relations role. They're now the models for people getting a vaccine. And so they really are, Mm -hmm. you know, just dealing with a ton.
0: That's WBEZ General Assignment Reporter Mariah Wolfel. Mariah, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Sasha. Now some rural areas are finding success with the initial rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. Places like Ford County in East Central Illinois, population 13,000. Gibson Area Hospital and Health Services has been leading the effort there. On the line with us now to discuss is Rob Schmidt. He's the hospital's CEO, and he's also a member of the 2021 Rural Health Services Council for the American Hospital Association. Rob, welcome to Reset.
2: Good morning, Sasha. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to get your reaction to what we just heard. Does anything resonate with what you've been hearing from hospital staff or what you're actually seeing on the ground at Gibson Hospital?
2: Absolutely. We, uh, like many rural places and really like a lot of counties across the state, are in the uh, limited doses shortage uh, area as far as how many doses we're getting to distribute the vaccine. We also have our fair share of, of skeptics in our communities Uh, for multiple reasons. But what we're finding is right now, the groups that are eligible, 1A, 1B, and 1C, are all very interested in getting the vaccine. So school teachers, essential workers, uh, 65 and older, are all clamoring for the vaccine and asking me and many of our staff, you know, when can I get it? When is my turn? How do I get in line? And our response is simply, we'll get it as fast as we can. It's limited on how many doses we get distributed through Ford County, through the state, et cetera. So uh, we have people who are wanting it, who are ready to get it. Yeah, We're ready uh, from a resources standpoint to put it in people's arms, but it's just getting the numbers out.
0: Well, Ford County was one of the first 50 counties in Illinois to receive vaccine doses. That's because The county had one of the highest death rates per capita in the state. And for context, as of yesterday, there have been more than 1,400 cases and 41 deaths in the county. Tell us briefly, Rob, how Gibson Hospital has been faring during the pandemic.
2: Well, as your uh, reporters pointed out in the beginning, we did not see a lot of COVID here. Uh, In fact, we only had one patient in the first round, if you will, Uh, We did have a couple of outbreaks from a few community events that didn't social distance or wear masks. And so then our community kind of freaked out a little bit. So we actually held a free drive-through testing clinic in the summer that was uh, well attended. And and we were doing about 1,000 tests a week uh, from people from as far as 100 miles away uh, driving down here to get a free test. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in the fall, like everyone else, is when we got more COVID hit. We actually had to set up a COVID wing in our hospital. Uh, We had as many as uh, eight patients at one time in our COVID wing. And after the uh, two holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, now that has started to subside again, we've actually taken our COVID wing back down. And we're getting back down to more normal levels of COVID as the entire state rates come down, our rates are also down. Um, just in the hospital, our, our positivity rate is under four percent, mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. our physician clinics in the county, our positivity rate is down below ten percent.
0: Do you believe that that early period where you had so few doses that that helped sort of maybe give you a head start to prepare for this, what was to come?
2: Yeah, the first the first round so uh, everybody reacted and and the supply chain tightened up severely and so we were working on how do we get around the supply chain and make sure we have the resources to take care of our patients both in our physician offices and at the hospital. And so as we found new avenues to get those supplies and get those resources when this when the second wave hit in the fall, we were well prepared to handle Uh, that wave of volume and that number of patients and and even today the supply chain continues to be very tight for gloves and for uh, gowns and things like that and so we continue to procure uh, an adequate supply for our patients and our staff Uh, but because we weren't hit hard in the first round Mm -hmm. we kind of had some time to build up so that was fortunate for a lot of rural hospitals didn't see a lot of COVID in the beginning.
0: So how many doses did the hospital initially get and, and how did they arrive?
2: So, our first route of doses was just a hunt. We'd been getting just 100 doses a week. And our very first um, doses were Pfizer. And uh, the Pfizer ones are the ones that have to be 80 below zero, you know, for storage. So they come through Chicago, and then they go to Peoria, and then they go to Champaign, and then they go to Ford County, and then they end up at the hospital. So that's kind of the chain of command of how they get routed through the state. And uh, the first 100 doses, because it's Pfizer and we did not at the time have uh, storage capacity, uh, we we used them right away. The first day, all those 100 doses were given. Wow. And then as Moderna has been coming out and we've continued to get about 100 doses a week, uh, Moderna does not need the 80 below zero. So um, we do have storage capacity for that. But we're not holding vaccine doses back for like the second dose. We're not... Trying to store any, we're we're giving out as as many as we can get. We're Mm -hmm. giving out, and uh, we have had uh, our second round of Pfizer. So there are uh, at least two hundred people who've gotten their second dose either of Pfizer and Moderna, and now um, through working with the health department, we've started getting now two hundred doses a week. And we just got our Pfizer freezer in last Friday, so now we actually have storage capacity for Pfizer doses, which we're trying to tell the state now we can hold up to 5,000 doses of Pfizer if we can get them. Right. Um, but that tells the state then we, we have the resources to, to handle Pfizer doses more than just one day at a time.
0: So given given all of that, when do you think the, uh, the county would be able to start vaccinating those who are now eligible under phase 1B of uh, the Illinois plan? And that includes non-healthcare uh, front uh, frontline essential workers and, and residents who are over 65?
2: We are actually doing that uh, this week and next week. We okay. have three school districts in Ford County and based on the number of doses we have, we're able to do about half of the teachers in each of those three schools this week and we'll do another half of them next week. And then we also, the, the county has started a, a sign up link on their webpage for 65 and older and I understand there's about 250 or 300 people who've already signed up through that link. And so we put messages out to the community saying, if you're 65 and older and you want the vaccine, sign up in the health department because that's the list that we will use then to start with. And we we were able to take the first 50 people off of that list and get them their first vaccine. So we are into 1B. Uh, again, it's if, if I can get 1,000 doses next week, then we'll just push through that many more people. But um, yeah. Right now, two hundred you know two hundred a week, it goes fast. But we are we're doing everything we can yeah. to make sure people are can get the vaccine. And there's so again in those early rounds, a lot of people are interested in getting the vaccine. It's just a matter of getting the doses.
0: That's Rob Schmidt. He's CEO of Gibson Area Hospital and Health Services. He's also a member of the 2021 Rural Health Services Council for the American Hospital Association. Rob, thanks for your great work and for your time today.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Let's bring in another voice joining us now to discuss possible solutions to some of the issues that we're seeing with the initial rollout of the vaccine is Sheldon Jacobson. He's a founder professor of computer science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Jacobson, welcome to Reset.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: First, I'd like you to break down the key factors that actually go into the vaccine supply chain and distribution system.
3: Well, there are four basic components. One is the actual production or manufacturing. Then there is the distribution. Then there's the allocation. And then finally, there is the immunization, so-called last mile. So if we look at the supply chain as being these connected links, any time any one of the links starts to weaken, then the supply chain starts to, in fact, uh, subperform or underperform what we hope it to be.
0: Professor, you apply your expertise in uh, data-driven, risk-based assessment to evaluate and inform public policy and public health. So what is your assessment of vaccine access and distribution in Illinois? What's working and, and what do we still need to fix?
3: Well, if we look at the Illinois Department of Public Health website, right now they have a uh one million doses that they have received but have not been administered so they are somewhere in the distribution and allocation phase. Uh, Right now, there is a shortage of vaccines simply because the demand is so high, and that's both in urban and rural areas. And if you compare the state of Illinois to many other states, we're fairly middling in terms of the percentage of doses that we've been able to administer so far. My view is that the vaccine manufacturers are handling the manufacturing risk quite well. They're making some adjustments right now, which are, in fact, causing a slight reduction in production so that they can ramp up a little later, in particular in in late winter, early spring. So we're going to have a massive surge of availability of the product. And uh, right now it's a slight hiccup. The real challenge is what is referred to as the last mile, getting the vaccines into the arms of people. And the last thing we really want to do is have high-level administrators micromanaging the actual last mile process. Give the vaccines where they can be allocated, because every vaccine that sits in a refrigerator system is basically not protecting anybody and ultimately can lead to to poor outcomes and deaths. We want to get them into people's arms as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, there's also the larger issue of not having reliable, consistent data and communication at the federal, state, and local levels. How can this be addressed moving forward?
3: Well, we do need a better uh, communication program. One of the things that, uh, that in fact, was just mentioned by the previous guests uh, is the fact that young people don't want to take the vaccine. They don't think it's an issue. But the key is that there is personal health and there is population health. As long as the virus continues to circulate, and this has not been widely communicated, but because it's an RNA virus, it will mutate. And the more times it finds a new host, a new person, it has a greater chance. So even though young people don't have a personal health risk, the fact that it circulates among them gives the virus the opportunity to mutate, and those mutations create tremendous population risk. You don't hear anybody talking about this, yet this is one of the great dilemmas that we're dealing with with the SARS-CoV-2 virus.
0: Very briefly, before we let you go, tell us your recommendations for how we can have a more even and equitable distribution of this vaccine in this state and across the country.
3: The CDC recommendations that were put out, I think, were fundamentally flawed, that they tried to micromanage who was going to get it. I believe the healthcare workers had to be number one, people over 75, over 65, because the data supports that. After that, when you start getting into the minutia of health conditions, smokers are on the list, which make absolutely no sense. I believe that if you simply based it on age, it's easier to verify and the data supports that. And if we did that, we can have a more equitable and a more efficient process of allocating the vaccines.
0: That's Professor Sheldon Jacobson with the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Jacobson, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps up the latest installment of our Closing the Gap series on vaccine access and distribution. But we're going to keep on it and continue to answer your questions about the vaccine and COVID-19. Hi, my name is Reba. I'm part
1: of
2: the disability community here in Chicago.
1: Hello, my name is Tanya. I'm calling from Hinsdale.
2: I'm trying to find out what the status is for giving vaccines to people with disabilities with severe pre-existing
1: conditions. If you do not have a computer or access to a computer or a family member with a computer or a smartphone, how does one find out or get information on location and time for appointments?
0: Reva, Tanya, thanks for your questions. We're working to answer them very soon. And if you have a question or concern about the COVID-19 vaccine or pandemic at large, Leave us a message at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet again tomorrow.